2: The fear of failing often stops people from moving forward or following a dream. But according to today's guest, Jim Harshaw Jr., every success story includes crushing failure, doubt, and uncertainty. Jim joins us to discuss how to maximize potential and increase resilience by leveraging failure for success. Jim became an NCAA Division I All-American wrestler and later the youngest Division I head coach in the country. Through his life, he has been surrounded by Olympians, CEOs, and millionaires, discovering their systems and frameworks for world-class performance. Jim is host of the Success Through Failure podcast. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, Joan.
2: So, Jim, I want to start off by talking a little bit about your career. For those that are listening in right now who may not know much about sports, what does it mean to become the youngest Division one head coach in the country?
0: So, as a Division one head coach, there you know, there's there are very few of those jobs out there and and they're hard to come by. and i um I got into coaching. Excuse me, right after my college career, which was 1999, I graduated and got into coaching. I was the assistant coach at the University of Virginia, my alma mater, for uh, just a couple of years before uh, I took over the head coaching position at Slippery Rock University, which is a smaller school in Pennsylvania, Division II Athletics. But uh, wrestling opted up to Division I because, uh, because Pennsylvania is such a, a deep wrestling state, um, a lot of the smaller schools in Pennsylvania opted up to the Division One level because uh, they're able to compete at that level. And, and so it was a big deal, right? I mean, I was 26 years old, and uh, really all it meant is I was the most underprepared, uh, inexperienced <laughs> head coach in the country, But uh, but they did give me the reins to the program. So I was proud of that.
2: So you were an elite athlete. How much of the training and when I say training I mean the mental training. How much of that do you think went into what you were able to achieve at such a young age?
0: The big part that most people don't understand I mean you have I think you have two sons who are competitive swimmers so you understand there's so much mental uh, training that, that that needs to go into competing at the highest level and I really didn't understand that at the high school level and when I got into college I really still didn't understand I started reading some mindset books and doing a little bit of mindset training but it was really when I started working with a mindset coach an actual sports psychologist that the things really started to click with me. And for me, um, <clears throat> the backstory there is that, you know, when I got to college, I was more or less a walk on wrestler. Uh, I, I was recruited, but I was not a scholarship athlete in Virginia when I first got there. All of my teammates were, you know, state champions or. Three-time state place winners. I, I never did any of those. My goal was to be a state champion, but I, I, I never even got onto the podium with the state championships growing up in Pennsylvania. And by the time I got to college, I, I just saw success as something that happened to other people, but not myself. Right? I saw mm-hmm. a goal achieving goals as something that other people did, and you know. But I I, I made the team. I uh, actually became a starter on the team as a freshman, which is a a huge deal for me and. And so I set my goal to be an All-American, which means finishing top eight in the country. And my freshman year, I actually qualified for the national championships, which is the first step. You have to qualify for the national championships, and once you get to the national championships, you have to win four matches in order to become an All-American. And so I qualified for for nationals my freshman year, but I failed to achieve my goal. My sophomore year, again, I qualified for the national championships, but again, I failed. Uh, My junior year, it was pretty much a repeat of the prior two years. I qualified for the national championships, but again, my season ended with me sitting in the locker room in tears, wondering why I can't do this. You know, am I not good enough? Am I not smart enough? Am I not capable enough? Like, do I just not have it, whatever it is? And and there was a lot of doubt there. And I thought to myself, like, I can't possibly do any more. I can't work any harder. I can't run more miles. I can't lift more weights. I can't watch more film. There's just not enough hours in the day. Like, what is it that I'm missing? And so, Joan, I dedicated my entire off season to figuring out what is it that I, I was missing because I had one more shot. I had one more chance my senior year in college. And, and that whole summer I I traveled all over the East Coast tr- finding places to train. I'd go to different universities and I would work at their summer camps for high school wrestlers. I was just a counselor so I could be around these these elite Olympic gold medalists and, you know, national championship coaches that they would bring in to work at their camps. And I just wanted to be around those people and pick their brains and try to figure out what it was that I was missing. And by the end of the summer and the start of my senior season, I never figured it out. It actually hit me. It was, I was in Morgantown, West Virginia, sitting in a hotel room. And the next day was the West Virginia open. And I, I realized I never figured out what it was that I was missing. And in that moment, I gave up on the outcome. I gave up on trying to become an All-American. I literally let go and I said, listen, you know, I'm going to give this thing everything I've got. I've given it everything I've had up to this point, and I'm going to continue to do that the rest of the season. And if, if I end up on the podium, I'll be very grateful. If I don't, then I can't, I can't beat myself up because I'm doing everything I possibly can do. And in that moment, I, I was able to, I didn't realize it at the time, but I put down this fear of failure. I put down this baggage that I had been carrying with me for years and I went out the next day and I, I competed with such freedom and, and fun and, and I dominated the competition. I went five and zero and, and won the championship that day. And I competed the rest of the season with the same mindset. Um, and I had been working with a mindset coach at that time too, who kind of revealed to me that that epiphany that you had that that's performance psychology 101 right whether it's in sports or business or relationships or otherwise and i competed with this freedom all season long and and again i qualified for the national championships and again i you know like i said you have to win four matches to be an all-american and i'd won my first three matches now i have to face the fifth ranked wrestler i'm sorry the fourth ranked wrestler in the country from the number one ranked team in the country university of minnesota and there's fifteen thousand people in the arena it's sold out like the national championships do every year for wrestling. And and my life is on the line. As far as I'm concerned at that point, you know, uh, I'm a 22-year-old kid, and and I'm thinking that, you know, my life is on the line. And I went out, and I competed with the same freedom and had to let go of the outcome, knowing that I can't control the outcome. All I control is the process and and putting everything that I have into it. And um, at the end of that match, I got my hand raised, and and I became an All-American that day.
2: And so that it, that elusive it that so many of us search for for me it it's become the way that i think and and I think that that's the it that people don't realize you know we put all the training into sports or the education into business um and, and the experience, but I think we stop ourselves because of the way we think and i and I think that that's the it
0: absolutely it it is this this trying to be somebody who who we want to be whether in, instead of just being ourselves, like fully being ourselves there's this concept of um do have be versus be do have and, and you may have heard of this joan but for the listener's sake you know uh so many times we try to do all the things that we need to do and that's what i was trying to do in my wrestling career i was working hard i was showing up early staying late doing the extra workouts watching the extra film sessions etc et i was doing everything so that I could have, have the the award, the recognition. And then I thought I would be the person who I wanted to be. And it was actually, I had it flipped around. You have to first be that person. Be that person. Allow yourself to be. Just fully be you. Fully be yourself. Allow this to happen. And when you when you be that person, then you will inherently do the things that you need to do. They just naturally flow from you. Yeah. And then... You'll have the success that you want.
2: A few years ago, I interviewed Ron Darling, who was a pitcher for the New York Mets, and he pitched a Game 7 during a World Series. And he talked about, he, he wrote a book about what happened on the mound, and he talked about having a blue collar mentality. And for him, what that meant was he had gone on to achieve all of this success, but somewhere within him, he really didn't believe he belonged there. And, you know, it was like this, I guess, this battle within him where he felt like he would, should be there some days, but there was that deep rooted uncertainty. And that caused him to choke. It, it's what he believed happened. And I think that happens to so many of us because we have these self doubts that we allow to infiltrate the way we see ourselves. And, and like you're saying, you can do everything right. But if you allow that to creep in there, I think it really will stop us every time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I can very much relate to that blue collar mentality. You know, I grew up, dad was a construction worker, mom was a secretary, and we were the hardest working people you ever met. And But we always believed that success and wealth and abundance was, there's just kind of this under underlying theme or feel or sense that that success at the highest level was for other people. And I think that's what he's referring to is,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is this, this sense of, you know, that that can be just wired into our unconscious mind that the highest level of success is for others. And, and you really have to, you, you have to do the hard work. We know that we know that we have to do the hard work, but it's the mindset piece that really is the difference maker. And I, I make a I make a distinction between hard work and inspired action. Like whenever you figure out what it is that, that drives you, what it is that you want, when you have clarity of purpose, you gain this peace of mind and that allows you to turn hard work into inspired action. I mean, listen, the, the work that I did as a wrestler, I mean, the, the, the training is absolutely grueling and, um, it, it's, it's widely considered, the hardest sport, uh, among the collegiate sports. Uh, and of course that's that's debatable and that's an opinion. But when you talk to folks who are a little more objective and, you know, I've talked to head coaches, national championship head coaches from other sports, soccer and lacrosse and football, and they, they regularly point to wrestling as, as the hardest sport as this grueling sport. And the training is just, just so intense, but that hard work was for me and, and for those who achieve at the highest level, it's, it's inspired action, just like you, Joan, for this, this podcast and this radio show. This is, for a lot of people, this might be hard work, but for you, it's inspired action. Like you're willing to do the hard work because you're inspired to do it. And when you find that inspiration, when you find that thing that, that is calling you, um, you're willing to do the hard work. And, and then you, that also helps you find the belief that I'm doing the right thing and this is my calling and I belong here.
2: I used to be one of those people, Jim, who lives small because I was afraid of failure. Whatever that word meant to me back then, I was afraid to take risks because I didn't want something to work out in a negative way for me. And it was really only once I learned to start to view failure, you know, like you talk about succeeding through it, because you, you look at it then as a learning experience, you look at it as a creative stimulant in a way, because sometimes it may not work out the way you want, but then you can turn it and twist it and build on it and you can end up with something amazing. And so that was, you you know, what I started to do. I looked at every experience as a learning experience, as a lesson, rather than the end of the world. And that changed my life. It changed everything for me.
0: Yeah, that is a hard place to get to, right? And and, and for the listener, what Joan's talking about and what I, I, you know, Preach all the time is success through failure, but that doesn't mean failure is something you're seeking. You know, you're not like looking to go fail at the next thing you attempt. You're, you're just willing to push the boundaries. you're willing to try things and take risks, and sometimes those things fail. And, and when you fail, you, you know, our default wiring tells us, you know you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. See, I told you, like stay in your lane. but But the real truth here is that this is data for you. This is information. This is feedback. When you look at, you know, the greatest of all time in in whatever it is, whether it's Thomas Edison and inventions or or, or Tom Brady uh, as the goat football player, the greatest of all time, you know, Tom Brady has had like a half a dozen games where he threw at least four interceptions. I mean, he didn't think to himself, oh my goodness, well, there's no way I can do well now. He was, he was, uh, drafted 199th in the NFL draft. I mean, he, you know, he, he didn't think to himself, well, geez, I guess I'm not going to be any good now. Well, I mean, maybe he, he had some doubts. Maybe there were some, some thoughts of like, gosh, man, I, I need to step it up. Maybe I, maybe I can't really be as good as I thought it could be. Maybe that stuff crept into his mind, but he had to override it. He had to work with coaches and mindset coaches and, in belief. And we just think that for, for people who achieve at the highest level, we think that, failure, like they're immune to failure or, or resistant to the negative thoughts or the negative self-doubt, but no, like those things happen to everybody. And that's, that's what I talk about on my podcast, success through failure. I interview world-class performers and we talk about failure. We talk about, you know, of course, tell me your habits for success and what you did to get there, but also tell me about a time when you failed that, that people don't know about. And let's, let's, let's talk about what, what did you learn from that? And using that failure as feedback, I interviewed Tim Ferriss on my podcast, who's a pretty well-known podcaster, probably one of the best known podcasters. And he's a five-time number one New York Times bestselling author. But he talked about failure as feedback and failure as data, failure as information. And we have to see it that way. It's not easy. We're not saying it's, it's, uh, it's going to come natural to you, but you have to hit the pause button and say, okay, I'm having this bad feeling right now because I, I tried that thing. I, I tried to run a marathon or go for that promotion or start that side hustle or have that tough conversation with my spouse. I tried to do that thing, but I failed. That is not evidence that you're not good enough or smart enough or capable enough. That is information for you. Now, you know, now you are wiser, more experienced, more knowledgeable, and you can take that information and learn from it, figure out what gaps you have in your game and where you can improve.
2: So Jim, if there's somebody listening to you right now who says, yeah, th- this is great advice, but every time I fail and it doesn't go right, it just chips away at my self-esteem, chips away and chips away. So how does that person turn it around so that he or she can get out of their way?
0: Yeah. And listen, for that listener who, who's experiencing that, and, and I experienced that as well, we have to do something about it. <clears throat> First of all, welcome to the club. It's natural. It's normal. Um, you know, you, you listen to, again, podcasts like mine where I'm interviewing these Olympic gold medalists and CEOs and New York, New York Times best-selling authors. Like, it, it feels the same to them, but here's how they handle it. They do the mindset work. Um, I'll give you an example. There's, there's a, a wrestler. We'll stick with sort of my, my microcosm, my world of wrestling. Um, there was a wrestler who, uh, when he showed up at college, his mom handed him a journal. and She said, run down your goals. And so that night before he went to bed, he wrote down Kyle Dake. This is his name. He wrote Kyle Dake, 2009 NCAA champion, 141 pound weight class. He wrote that down. Now he's a freshman. He's not going to win the national championship. You're just not, you know, is a freshman. That doesn't happen very often. Well, he wrote that down that, that night. He woke up, wrote down his goal again. He did it every morning and every night. That year he went on to win the national championship. His sophomore year, his second year in college, he wrote his goal down twice in the morning, twice at night. And then he won the second national championship. His third year he wrote down three times in the morning, three times at night. He won his third championship and his senior years, of course, four times in the morning, four times at night. And he won a fourth championship. Now, this guy went on to become – he was the first wrestler in the history of the sport to win a national championship at, every, at, at a different weight class every year. Every year he bumped up a weight class and won a national championship. Nobody's ever done that before. But guess what? How many people have actually done what he's done in terms of writing down his goals every morning and every night? How many people actually are willing to do the mindset work? Um, a, a friend of mine, Dr. Nate Zinser, he is – uh, he was, he's recently retired as the director of performance at West Point for about three decades. Uh, he worked with um, the top soldiers in, in the United States military, but also he worked with people like Eli Manning. Eli Manning was a, um, a Super Bowl MVP, two-time Super Bowl champion and MVP, worked with Dr. Zinser. Dr. Zinser would have him do this kind of thing. He would have him do these exercises. He would have him do this mindset at work. If you're, if you're experiencing failure and it's chipping away at your psyche, chipping away at your confidence, you actually have to do the work to override those things. And, you know, the, the, the simplest one is to create a mantra. I'm strong, something like, I'm stronger, I'm wiser, I'm more capable because of that failure. I'm grateful for that failure. What have I learned from it? You can start with that, with those words. When you say those words and actually create the feeling inside of your body, then you begin to turn things around. Then you begin to take take those things that are are chipping away at your confidence and start building your confidence back.
2: And I agree with you. I think the key is to keep moving forward with those baby steps because when we start to feel – that things are going against us and our self-esteem gets chipped away, we tend to retreat and to quit. But it really is to keep being persistent, doing the work, moving forward, baby steps. When I started this work 13 years ago, it was the result of basically my life imploding. Everything I had, I lost in a very short period of time. And I created the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life brand in a way to save me. And so I became a student of the work hoping to give people tools to navigate whatever challenges they're facing. But it really did save me by studying and working and learning about the power of the mind. And as you keep saying, having inspired action, being persistent, it's not easy. It is not easy, but it is possible. And anyone can achieve the types of things that you've been talking about.
0: That's right. And the key thing that you said there, Joan, is it's not easy. Like, it's not easy we we have to understand that we have to realize that okay I'm having this this bad feeling this doubt this fear of failure I have to move forward anyway that's what the great ones do they move forward despite those things and that's what you did despite the losses that you had and i, I I've read about your losses and I understand like you, you experienced significant loss three significant losses within five months and and you have to find ways to move forward anyway, despite those. And, and it's, um, it's not easy, but it's, but it's necessary.
2: So, Jim, put on your coaching hat for a moment. What would you say to someone right now to motivate that person to get started?
0: Do one thing. Figure out one thing. One small catalyst. It's the start that stops most people. Listen, Joan and I have thrown a lot at you. you know, Speaking directly to the listener right now, we've thrown a lot at you, a lot of things you can go do. What's one thing, one small thing, maybe it's, maybe it's taking out a pen and paper right now and just writing out your mantra, shove it in your pocket and then read it tonight before you go to bed and read it tomorrow morning before, when you wake up, um, one small catalyst, it might be sending a text message to a friend you can have, go have a cup of coffee with. It might be going on Amazon and, uh, buying a book. Uh, it might be, you know, you know, like wh- whatever the, the one thing is. Right. Um, you know, go to, to Joan's website and make sure you get on her her email newsletter. So you're getting that dose of positivity. Like what's the one thing? Just one small, easy thing you can do right now to create momentum.
2: And I always say that Nike had the best campaign, the best slogan ever. Just do it. I don't think there are truer words.
0: Yeah. Just do it. Just start. It's the start that stops most people.
2: And Jim, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work?
0: Sure. You can find my podcast on any platform, Success Through Failure. Uh, you can just Google my name, Jim Harshaw. Uh, I'm on all the social media platforms. Just grab me on uh, Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm out there. And uh, the other one, the place is my website, Jim Harsha, Harshaw, H A R S H A W, Jim Harshaw apply. If you want to apply for a free one time coaching call with me, uh, I look forward to talking to anybody who wants to, to grab a time on my calendar.
2: And Jim, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway?
0: Action. Do something. Take action. Understand that your failure, your doubt, your, your, your you know, things that are chipping away at your confidence, like, that's normal. That's okay. Welcome to the club. All the great ones have felt that too. All you have to do now is take action. One small positive step to take action. We gave you a hand. You know, gave you a handful of, of catalysts of small things you can do. Um, pick one of those and take action on it within the next 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Clock's ticking. Go.
2: <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for joining us. What a great conversation, and, and I would love for you to come back anytime.
0: Thank you, Joan. It was great to be here and love to come back again as well.
2: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Again, that's BestPathForMe.com.
2: An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself. Your products and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, it's your time to shine I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance you work hard to get the booking so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation to learn more visit joanherman.com slash media training that's joanherman.com slash media training life but sometimes we just need a little help our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now joining me today is allison carmen a business consultant life coach and author of the gift of maybe offering hope and possibility in uncertain times allison's podcast 10 minutes to less suffering provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry allison is here today to discuss why you're not out of time welcome allison thanks for joining us Oh, thanks so much for having me, Joan. So, Allison, I know this is something that I have been guilty of many times in my life, especially as I'm getting older. What happens when we think it's too late to follow our passions and dreams?
3: Well, first of all, it, it's one of the biggest fears we can take on in life because we all have passions and we all have desires. And what an awful feeling to think the thing that resides in your heart so strongly is no longer possible. And what's so interesting about this is when people come to speak to me at my office, 25-year-olds and 6-year-olds, they all have the same problem. And I think the reason why a lot of us take this on is that our society has a timetable. There's a time to go to school. There's a time to have a child. There's a time to have a family, a time to get married, a time to retire. And because we live on this timeline, what it does, it creates a reality that is not necessarily aligned with our true desire or passions or what we really want. And when you're really able to drop this idea of time... You really open up, yeah sure there there could be a time if you wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, and maybe our body ages to a point we can 't do that any longer, but there's so many things that are always possible. You could start a business at any age, have a re- new relationship at any age, start a new career at any age, go back to school it 's just literally shifting how we decide to see our lives and I remember years ago, I was at this event for Amma the Hugging Saint, and I was placed next to this woman who was eighty years old and when we were talking she told me she went back to med school in her 40s and she ended up having like a 30 35 career year career at um a government agency and i remember saying to her why did you go back when you were 40 didn't you feel you were too old and she said absolutely not i always put my passions and my dreams before time if we make ourselves available to life at all times then time won't be the issue. Then our heart will be the issue, our desires, everything that we truly want. And I have seen people in their 40s, 50s, 60s create new things all the time. So stop thinking about time and spend more time thinking about your desires and your passions because what you desire desires you. And if you stay open and you don't turn your back on life, life will be open for you.
2: All right. So, Allison, how do we quiet the fears that keep us from our truth?
3: One of the things I do is I use the maybe practice, which I know I talk about so often, but it really helps us because this time issue is really about fear. So it's a fear of what's possible, fear of the unknown, because if someone would come to us and say, this is possible, I know because I could predict things, we would do it. So it's really just our own fear of uncertainty that makes us doubt what we know to be true within our heart. So I would use the maybe practice and the maybe practice is write down your biggest fear. My big, and our biggest fear is usually we're out of time. Uh, I'm not going to be able to start that business. I'm out of time to start a new career. I'm out of time to fall in love. And then we get to ask ourselves, are we absolutely certain if that fear is true? And what's so beautiful about this exercise is you can't be certain. You can't be certain of anything, but because we're not certain, That means that there's hope and there's possibility. And so then you start writing maybe statements, broad ones. Maybe the thing I want is still possible in my life. Maybe I could take a class. Maybe I could research that new business. Maybe I could open myself up to a new relationship. It is so small and so simple. But all you're doing is putting doubt on your fear. And when you put doubt on your fear, your mind opens up, the windows open, hope comes in. And we get to engage in what's possible. And that's the key to life. You know, we create so many of our obstacles with our fear. And maybe allows us to drop the fear, drop the obstacles, and be open.
2: Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Allison and her work, you can visit AllisonCarmen.com. We'll be right back.
0: From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan, this is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey. York City.
2: back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Lyme disease is one of the fastest growing infectious diseases in the country and one of the most difficult to diagnose. According to today's guest, Dr. Daniel Cameron, the increasing number of cases has led many in the scientific community to deem the disease a public health crisis. He joins us today to discuss the major aspects of Lyme disease. Dr. Cameron is a nationally recognized leader for his expertise in the diagnosis and treatment of Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses. He is the author of the book, Inside Lyme, an expert's guide to the science of Lyme disease. Welcome, Dr. Cameron. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Happy to be with Joan.
2: So, Doctor, why do you believe Lyme disease is on the rise?
1: Well, I've been in practice for 37 years in in New York, where we certainly had plenty of cases, always had cases, even when I started. But uh, there's more and more people who have been outside with their pets. the they're trying to escape the city, but when you escape the city or some urban areas, they run into more uh, opportunities to come out and be on the grass and pick up a tick.
2: And what are the stages of the disease?
1: Early, uh, early disseminate, which is almost the same as early. And then, you know, various people use late, chronic, persistent, and for everybody else. And so, you know, you'd like to be caught early or early disseminate, but a lot of people don't have that opportunity to have those early signs.
2: So what would be considered early? Is that when you just have the rash or the blood tests are confirmed?
1: Well, it's usually just the rash, uh, or it might be a rash with a tick in it, do a, a blood test and catch it. But uh, just having a positive test doesn't mean that's when it started. Uh, even this, uh, some other the Western Blot, GM, which is a fancy one for early line, it stays around so long that uh, it, you know, it's still uh, not so early after all. And so yeah, I always have to use clinical judgment to you know, work with that uh, person I see as to what is their history.
2: I saw someone who had a rash that was diagnosed recently with Lyme, and it, the rash didn't look like anything I would have expected. It. I always heard about this bullseye, but this one was about eight inches wide and about four inches high. And it actually looked more like a cellulitis, but it was that rash and then a positive blood test that the doctor made the diagnosis of, of Lyme.
1: Well, you're um, you're absolutely right. Uh, only one out of four, maybe even less, have that picture-perfect bullseye. Uh, more often, it's flat red. Uh, more often, it's oval than it is round. So the fact that yours was oval is uh, more common. And because it's flat and red, maybe a little bit thickened, the doctor thinks it's a spider bite or thinks it's a cellulitis, and they treat for cellulitis, but they forget uh, to mention that, by the way, Lyme disease, uh, can look like that too. And so there have been a few people who um, who actually gotten messed up because they kept treating for the skin infection, not Lyme.
2: So if, let's say, a person has a rash like that and the rash goes away and the person thinks, oh, okay, this was something else and I'm better now, but they never treated the bacteria that, you know, obviously came in through that tick bite, what would happen then down the road? Is that when that person will have problems?
1: Yeah, the Infection seems to go away anyway, even if you don't treat. So when the rash goes away, people are let down their guard, and uh, and then later on, that's when all of these symptoms you hear about you know the immune system's busy, the the uh, fatigue, the can't concentrate, can't process information, the headaches, all the things that that you associate with uh, Lyme. You hear about Lyme the frustrating part of Lyme shows up, you know, and if you don't see that rash or dismiss it, uh, that's when the doctor has a challenge. Uh, The patient also has a challenge of letting the doctor know.
2: Right. So if you find the rash and blood work confirms it, how do you know, uh, and and let's say you do a a course of the doxycycline or or whatever it is they prescribe, how do you know when you're in the clear? When can you say, okay, this is taken care of, I'm good to go?
1: Well, that's a good question. If you treat at the time of the rash... um, a lot of people get better, and um, maybe two out of three, which is great. It just one out of three seems to have troubles when you follow them, or they'll be well and then show up a few months later sick. So that's where the the hot debate is. You know, let's do for the one out of three who has troubles. And so, some doctors say, well, no, nope, twenty one days is all you get. And I'm in a group of doctors that says, well, I'm going to really lean on the ones that are, become chronically ill or late and, uh, and then uh, I have to treat longer than the standard three to four weeks or I might have to look at other infections in a tick, you know, like Babesia, maybe that's why they're still sick. So it's a, I take that, that group and uh, have to come up with a solution. I hate to have them get lost in the system and get called fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue.
2: If you've had Lyme at some point and let's say you've treated it, is it always something you have to worry about? Is it, is it with you for the rest of your life?
1: a lot of people get better so remember two out of three you know hit the run stat two out of three seem to do pretty well and matter what you do it's the rest of them um it's uh, you know depending on how sick they are how long they've been sick but uh, uh certainly uh in all of the years i've been in practice there's plenty of people who are quite sick been sick for a long time who do well now they're nervous you know will something come back uh will i get bit again and uh but uh, it's when you've been sick pretty sick you, you can understand how nerve-wracking it is to not know. I mean, there are some people who stay sick and have a hell of a time, a really rough time trying to wrap it up. But if you get better, it's still nerve-wracking.
2: What are the most common symptoms when you're moving from early stage to a later stage? What, what would a person be experiencing?
1: Well, I often liken it to the immune system as too active. So you get almost like a fight-or-flight type process so that you're tired uh, but wired. Uh, the brain is not Process information is quite as clean, so they call it a fog. There's a, the body has a problem because they're wired so they're not sleeping. Uh, every mood buttons turn up to high, so you can say, "Oh, my anxiety is coming in waves," but so do a sadness and irritability. And uh, then they can get kind of lightheaded uh, when they move, get up too quick.
2: Many people say, I-, "I never even saw a tick." How come people don't know they've been bitten?
1: Well, sometimes uh, you know people are scratching. Some of them tend to detach rather easily, even before they get engorged. Because you see people who find ticks in their house that are partly engorged and they're still alive and they're still, you know, hanging around.
2: So let's talk about how Lyme disease would be diagnosed. Let's say you have the perfect situation where the person has a rash and they're presenting with this rash. What tests would you be running?
1: Well, if I see a you know a rash, even without a tick that hey that's not you know quite like a bullseye not so sure that I do a blood test and uh, there's something called an ELISA which is fancy word for titer which looks uh, for a pattern of proteins that you might have from the the infection Uh, and then uh, there's so many other co-infections that there's blood tests for like anaplasmosis, uh, Ehrlichia, Bartonella, Obesia that you can test for. So I do those tests but if there's still or the the test is taking too long, uh, I'll end up treating uh, based on what they're presenting with, not just the test.
2: Right. So if a patient has a positive IgM test, that would pretty much indicate an active case of Lyme?
1: Yeah. M, the IgM or immune globulin M are the first responder. Then later on, it kind of turns into an IgG pattern. It's just that with Lyme, you can't always count on it going from, the M pattern to the G pattern. And if all you get is M, you're still going to have the doctor decide how long you have been sick, how long you want to treat for.
2: And you had mentioned a Western blot test. What is that?
1: Uh, a Western blot is a test where you uh, are looking for proteins that are typically in a in an infection. You know, like the cell wall, you know, the cytoplasm, the mitochondria—all these kind of proteins that we learned from science class. So, they look for those proteins that are kind of unique to Lyme. Uh, And so they run it on a a piece of paper, run it, and it looks like a bunch of kind of bands or slashes or blobs. Some people call it Western blob test. And so it's sort of a pattern. So, if you get enough clues, uh, like on a G pattern, if you get 5 out of 10, or M, 2 out of 3, you say, aha, it's highly likely that that is Lyme. Uh, it's just that not everybody gets those baths, and so you're left with, like, well, if they're sick, you have to do a lot of tests for other things. But I don't, like, cause to Lyme out if, if they don't have all the bands they're looking for.
2: When you suspect a case of Lyme and you tell a patient that this is what you believe is happening, what is the normal course of treatment?
1: Well, I, I always uh, tend to start with doxycycline. Uh, now, even in kids under 8, because they're worried about that's I can get in the teeth or bones is that, uh you can't actually do two weeks according to the CDC without those issues so if all I got is mine that seems simple just that's like it's more complicated I might switch to a different pill like amoxicillin or treat for a
2: and so when someone takes a course of antibiotics we know what it does to all the gut bacteria do you usually recommend that someone takes a probiotic or a prebiotic along with it
1: I always recommend uh, the probiotics, uh, like maybe $40 with a B. Prebiotics is commonly done, but I'm not so sure that adds much. uh, And I also uh, uh, recommend that they um, stay with alcohol and sugar uh, because it interferes with uh, trying to have a good outcome.
2: Because we know how important the immune system is in healing and and gut health to the immune system is so important. So that's why I was asking about that, that you want to try to keep yourself as healthy as possible. What about taking supplements like C and D? Is it safe to take them alongside an antibiotic?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's safe to take those. Um, One of the things you should know is that some of the zinc, magnesium, calcium, those type of minerals stick to doxycycline. Um, So you don't get the absorption that you want. So if you're going to take those kinds of minerals, then I recommend taking those separate from Doxycline, like two hours away. So I take with food because it's so hard on the stomach. But I might take the zinc, magnesium, calcium two hours later. I might take them at the same time as probiotics um, so I can keep things uh, simple.
2: And how do you recommend we go about protecting ourselves from these tick bites?
1: Well, I um, find that um, tick check is still quite useful. It's just, it, it's it's not done that often when a, the kid gets a little older, because who wants mom to be doing a tick check when you're like 11? It's kind of annoying. And then, and plus they're so busy, they don't get to remember it um, all the time. The second thing is that since so many of them are come around pets, I always tell people at least don't have the uh, pet sleep in the bed, uh, and that uh, if they have a uh, a couch and the dog sits by the couch, as uh, the cat does, is at least uh, get a, like a dust bag. something that can cut a, it'll suck up any chicks if they happen to be hanging around. And uh, be careful when you go out with them, uh, with the pets, too, and not pick up ticks. I think the sprays and things like that, and beef keeps mosquitoes away. But, and it's recommended that uh, you know, it's not as reliable as we like. And this pyrethrum, this insecticide you put on the skin, it, uh, if it's fresh, it can get uh, some ticks that can get, get hot feet and fall off. But, uh, but if a tick can make it to your skin in time, boy, it's uh, ready to go, and it's a, you can't count on that. Uh, and the last thing I want to mention is that if you're out with, and you think a tick might be on your clothes, it might be, put it in the dryer. They don't like heat, they don't like dry, and uh, knock it around. You know, that way you don't have to necessarily always wash clothes when you're outside.
2: Have you ever heard of anyone who may have gotten the tick bite, may have gotten Lyme, didn't treat it? Is it possible for our immune system to eradicate this, or does it always have to be treated?
1: Well, that was the original question in the 70s, is that would you get sick if you don't get a swollen knee? If you don't get that type of arthritis, don't get Bell's palsy or rash. So there was a lot of interest in following people over time. But almost all of them end up being sick or, you know, the vast majority get sick at some point, maybe not when they get the rash. And so that feeling that you naturally can protect yourself, that your body can take care of it, is, uh, has part of uh, not been a very good strategy. Now, some people get to the three weeks of treatment and then they think they should watch and wait. The doctor says watch and wait. Now, I don't have any problem with that if you feel well. But if you don't feel well, you know, you should at least get your doctor to make sure you have nothing else wrong and make sure to uh, at least aware that uh, maybe treat, retreatment is available. And if you don't really want to retreat as a doctor, then, you know, there are other doctors who might consider. It. But, uh, you know, it's a hot debate as to whether to treat more than three weeks.
2: If someone goes through the three-week course of treatment or and he, he or she feels well, no symptoms, no side effects, nothing happening in their body. How do they know then that they're in the clear? Will you run another blood test or do you pretty much assume the antibiotic did its job and, and the person's okay?
1: Well, there isn't any blood test to tell you when Lyme is over. There's a, even people have a clean positive test. There's no test to say I'm, I'm cured, I'm fine, I'm, I'm healthy. So it's not like other diseases where you have a good outcome. You know what it is, that you're well so it's a uh, one of those things where I might do a test to see if there's evidence of another infection in a tick. Uh, but generally, there's no objective, clean, clear, satisfying way to know you're fine. If you're fine, feel fine, you've had some reasonable amount of treatment, I just let it go.
2: Do you recommend that a patient go to a doctor like you or a specialist, or can a regular internist usually handle this situation?
1: Well, I find that there's an awful lot of doctors who actually treat Lyme and do a good job and more than ever before. Uh, and they're looking for Lyme, which is all important. And uh, treating uh, in a timely manner, just that there's still plenty that don't uh, look or they they need a tick or a rash that says. Especially when there's still too many people who, um, who as doctors, are uh, on the sideline and not treating such. Just be aware that uh, if you're sick and saying sick and the symptoms are persistent, can't find a better answer, is book a second man in line. Of mine. One doctor says, no, at least get a second opinion.
2: Dr. Cameron, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It it is nice weather now, and as you said, more people are spending more time outside, and this is really a concern for us, and it's something that we have to be mindful of. So if you'd like to get more information about Dr. Cameron and his work, you can visit danielcameronmd.com or grab a copy of his book, Inside Lyme, An Expert's Guide to the Science of Lyme. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us.
1: And thank you, John.
2: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Did you know that fostering a truly diverse and inclusive organization adds to the business value proposition? Diversity, equity, and inclusion can be an especially intense and emotional topic in business, media, and politics alike. Generally, because this topic calls for change, it is met with resistance. What does diversity and inclusion really mean? Diversity is defined as understanding, valuing, and celebrating the uniqueness of each person and recognizing how individual differences enrich your organization At all levels. These differences appear along many differing dimensions beyond gender, age, race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. Inclusion allows all team members to be treated fairly and respectfully. Equity is access to opportunities and resources so all can contribute fully to the organization's success. When you have an organization like this, you approach challenges from all directions with solutions from every angle, which lends to achieving greater results. Your team and clients both feel recognized, and appreciated. Because of this, businesses such as these gain success in collaboration, sales, business relationships are strengthened, investments are secured, and overall positive culture is established. To further this discussion, call me Bertha Robinson at 732-705-5060 or visit my website star one
5: Did you know that Reiki can help lessen stress, depression, and anxiety? And are you aware that Reiki is now being used in hospitals as a complement to medicine? And it's because of its relaxing effects that Reiki has helped many overcome their health concerns. It was founded by a Buddhist monk named Mikao Yasui of Japan in the early 1920s, and his goal was to help heal broken people. Reiki comes from a universal life force energy which radiates pure love and this energy is then transferred through the Reiki practitioner's hands to the client. Reiki is considered a form of energy medicine which addresses the entire energy body called the chakras which correlates to every system within our bodies from our pineal gland all the way down to our adrenals and spinal cord. So why not consider the many benefits of Reiki and how it can help impact the health of your body, mind and spirit. Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a Certified Angelic Crystal Reiki and Magnified Healing Master Teacher. For more information, you could reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com.
2: Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words, however I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations, and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So, how can you get through a tragedy? Recognize that you have a choice in the situation. We often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating the circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. Never suppress your feelings. Hurt, sadness, and grief are all normal emotions, and they should be felt. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. Read books and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
1: The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.